Welcome to the Athletics of Business podcast. This is episode 27. Welcome to the Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome to this episode of the Athletics of Business podcast. And today's guest is Rob Emrick. Rob is a serial entrepreneur and the CEO of Gimbal Incorporated. Gimbal Incorporated is a marketing technology that unites the physical and digital worlds. The company counts over 10,000 end customers from global giants like Ford, Citibank, Walgreens to small neighborhood businesses. Gimbal has received over $90 million in investment from institutions like Qualcomm, AEG, Zebra Technologies, and SK Group. The company was recognized for its remarkable growth, number 66, on the Inc. 500 and number 34 on the Deloitte Technology Fast 500. Before Gimbal, Rob started over five other ventures and has a lifetime record of four wins and one loss. Rob has been featured in the New York Times bestselling book, The Lean Entrepreneur, and 21 Questions for 21 Millionaires. He has been recognized by the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award and 40 Under 40 at age 25. He is an active member in the Young President's Organizations and a member of the Digital Advisory Committee at the Alliance for Audited Media. Rob has done more community service than courts demand of white-collar criminals. In addition to serving on corporate boards, Rob has sat on nonprofit and community boards of various Jewish organizations, the Tobacco Public Policy Center, the Alliance for Nonprofit Insurers, the PBS documentary on pediatric cancer, A Lion in the House, and, it, and continues his philanthropic work with his family through the Emmerich Foundation, a donor-advised fund at the American Endowment Foundation. Rob received a scholarship to attend the Ohio State University Honors Program and graduated with research distinction. He loves adventure travel and backcountry camping and has walked over 1,000 miles of the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to, you know, to New York. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. And there's, uh, there's pages of more stuff that I can put on there, but I really appreciate you being here with us today. Sure. Happy to do it. Um, well, I, I'll tell you what, I want to jump right in and I want to share your journey with our listener because it is so fascinating to me. You know, I, I like to know what makes people tick and, and what's moved them um, from where they started off to where they are today, you know, moves them from good to great, um, what goes into their purpose and, and what drives them. So can you take us back? Uh, what influenced you, impact you in your younger days and, and, and tell us about that? Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think from the outside, if someone were to look at me when I was in elementary school or, or high school, you know, I was not, I was like a smart kid. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, there's so many like TED Talks now about um, sort of, multi, you know, different educational tracks for different people. And I think one of like the common themes that I hear all the time is that a lot of entrepreneurs, whether they're successful or not, learn differently, they process information differently, they act uh, differently. And I think that those type of differences are not always favored by sort of the traditional educational system. Mm -hmm. and then, I, did, I think I did okay in school, but certainly, um, yeah, I, I mean, for the most part, I was like, a, uh, you know, an obstinate and then also angry kid just you mm -hmm. know, with a, with a death in the family that, that I was going through at the time. And, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that, uh, I guess I, I don't think any of my teachers or classmates would be surprised at what I do now, but I also don't think they would be surprised if I 
you know, ended up in jail or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> would that be, hey, would that be for a white collar crime? Because you've done plenty of community service. <laughs> I got I to tell you, and I need to, uh, to pay homage to uh, Artie Isaac, a good friend and mentor of mine. I took that line from him. And he okay. does way more community service than I do. Okay, um, well, but, well done. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's great. And and as I was sitting here getting ready for prepping for um this this podcast, um I couldn't help but be amazed at, at some of the experiences you've had, some of the journeys. But if it's okay with you, I want to go back to what eventually led to you setting up the Emmerich Foundation. And, and obviously, a, an awful situation you went to. You know, it's funny. I was sitting at the not funny. Excuse excuse that. It was it was. Um, Eerie, I was sitting at the bus stop today with my six-year-old and I had my four-year-old there standing next to me. And I was thinking about what you went through at an early age with your sister and how that must have impacted your life and the fact that you made something so incredibly positive out of that. Can you, can you share that with us? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I was seven when my sister passed away, which, you know, I understand now was like a, I, I don't think that there's any good time um, to, to, uh, to lose a sibling and I think probably even more difficult for parents to lose a kid. Um, but it was a particularly difficult time. I, you know, I didn't quite understand the world, not that I do now, but <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was just, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to go through as a kid. And, um, you know, I think that it, it really has informed, uh, who I am in, in good and bad ways. I choose to try to look at the, the good ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what led to that was, uh, at, you know, as you alluded to, I had a sister who passed away from pediatric cancer, which is a, a non-preventable type of cancer is what she passed away from. Mm -hmm. it's, called, it's called neuroblastoma. Interestingly, I believe now most of the kids that, uh, that get neuroblastoma live. Um, so it was quite a while ago that she passed away. I'm, I'm 39 now and, and I was seven when she passed away. So I guess 32 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, so survival rates for at least that type of cancer have improved dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, you know, just a major part and, and informed a, a large part of my life. I got a chance to see how my parents dealt with that. Um, and you know, they're still married and they're still together and I, I, I don't know how, um, right. I can't imagine what that's like, but, um, you know, doing something just seemed like one of the things I needed to do in order to, to move on. Right. As I mentioned, I was like a really, I think like a, a very angry kid. Right. And, uh, um, it took me, you know, leaving, uh, Cleveland where I grew up, I took a year off to travel. That's when I hiked the part of the Appalachian trail that I did. I lived on a kibbutz in Israel for a while. Um, and it really just sort of, you know, I'm so happy I did that and had a chance to process and also just, I think one of the big takeaways for me from that year is that the world doesn't owe me anything. You know, mm -hmm. an angry mm -hmm. kid, if I want to be an angry kid and be an angry adult, if I want to be an angry adult, but it doesn't change any of the facts that like, as I said, the world doesn't right. owe anybody. Right. Um, and I think that that was an important mindset change. Uh, and there's a few things that happened over the course of that year that really, um, you know, led me to, Right. Uh, there, there, there was a certain event in that. I mean, when, when did it really dawn on you? What, I mean, did it, did it take some time to all of a sudden come to that? I mean, we've all had those, 
you know, different things in our life that it was adversity and things that we, we didn't ask for that we probably didn't think we deserved at the time. But all of a sudden there's this, this epiphany where it's, you know, okay, now you have a choice of what, what you're going to do with the circumstance that happened to you. What was it when it started to really resonate with you? And I guess for lack of a better term, the light bulb went on. Sure. I mean, I think that there's two events that happened that year um, from the two different experiences I had. The first was, um, as I mentioned, I, I lived in, in Israel. I lived on a kibbutz that, like, ostensibly we were there to do, like, archaeological digs, which we did. But that was, like, a really small part of the experience. Anyways, on the second day that I was there, I uh, had taken a bus into downtown Jerusalem. The kibbutz I lived on was, like, the southern outskirts of the city. Uh, with a friend, um, a new friend from the UK, and we walked off the bus, and maybe you know within ten minutes, um, like a three bombs went off, and uh, we, you know, we weren't. I wasn't maimed or anything like that, but there was a lot of carnage around me, and uh, it made me really think, quite frankly, a lot about the minds of the people who did it, and the minds of the people who. Um, who lived through it and uh, just I think I saw a little bit more complexity in that situation than perhaps others uh, did at the time mm -hmm. um, I think that that was really informative for me to try to appreciate life wow yeah and then the second yeah. was probably a little less dramatic but I was walking on the Appalachian Trail I think I'd been going for like two or three weeks I think I was in somewhere in like northern Georgia or I must have been in North Carolina or Tennessee but okay. um, I remember, you know, basically I would get, I would restock at like gas stations or grocery stores for a week at a time. And then, wow. walking. and um, I remember being like two and a half days or three days into a, you know, what was going to be a seven day trip. And I thought I was miserable. I mean, I had just like been walking in the rain for two and a half uh, weeks. I was disgusting. I just wanted to, <laughs> right. I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I remember sitting down on a rock in like a driving rain and thinking, I don't want to go anywhere. Like, I'm not going to go anywhere. Um, I want like a helicopter to come pick me up or something. You know, like I'm not. <laughs> I, I sat there for a long time. I mean, I don't remember exactly how long. It could have been three minutes or it could have been five hours. I really don't remember. But I just remember realizing nothing was coming. There was no helicopter that was coming. Right, <laughs> Nobody right. And, you know, even if some other random person happened to walk by me, no one's going to be like, you know, we're going to call. Yeah, you know, throw you on their back. Right. Like, get your ass up and start moving. And so there are really two directions I could have gone. One was to turn around and walk back to where I came from, which was like three days away. And then the next was to keep going to the next road, which was like three days away. And, uh, you know, just not having any other option and needing to persist through that, I think was, it's not like some dramatic event, but it ends up, it stuck with me. And, um, and I, I see that a lot, you know, even in the current thing that I have, I had two co-founders who, I mean, they quit, you know, along the way, ostensibly for health reasons, but, you know, it's a stressful environment being in the startup world and, and it's hard. And so, um, you know, persisting a little bit longer is probably one of the best lessons that I've learned in my life. Um, but yeah, I think it comes in some ways from that experience. So, so let me, let me ask you this. 
you you wrote a blog i believe it was the end of may like may 29th great blog in terms of you know the default of entrepreneurs is failure you know that's sort of our, our default setting because we we have losses every single day and you you <laughs> i love the four and one by the way in your bio that's outstanding but but you um you continue to come up with new ideas and you continue to create and you continue to have startups what what drives you to do that I mean, what, when, it, when the default is failure, when you have done so much and accomplished so much, why go back to with an other, with an other idea and start at zero? And I think it's awesome that you do it. I'm just curious what drives you to do that. I don't know. And, and you know, I don't, because I think there's like a, a question in our sector of like, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? Like, do they learn these behavior? I, I don't know that I know the answer to that, but um, one I think a lot of people know of Steve Blank from his work on like mm -hmm. the lean entrepreneur. Yeah. There's a, a lot of other writing that he does about sort of the psychology of entrepreneurship. And one of his, one of the things he talks about, which I think is really interesting is that entrepreneurs um, are more comfortable with what other people perceive as chaos. Like they almost want it. And that a lot of times it came from a chaotic childhood environment. So they're just more comfortable with chaos and, and when I say chaos, I don't mean like, you know, the ceilings are falling down, but right. things that other people are not necessarily comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I'm not as uh, turned off by the chaos of starting something new that maybe somebody else is. I just don't look at it as, a, uh, as an impediment in the same way. Um, I don't know if I'm right about that, but... Uh, you know, at least I think also some of it too is when I was coming up as an entrepreneur, like I started a, a this nonprofit organization right out of college, but that was also like right around the time of the recession. Uh, well, I guess it was 2001. I think when I was starting my first for-profit companies was right around the time of the recession. And um, it just, I, I you know, watching my, my father was a research chemist growing up and as the companies that he would work for would change their goals or whatever it was that they're working on, I think it became clear during his generation that you don't work for the same company for your whole life. And so I just started to view getting a job and working for another company as less stable than perhaps other people did. And so I just thought if it's going to be up to somebody else or me who like to determine my success, I prefer to have it be me. Right. Right. So how do you, how do you do that then as an entrepreneur, when you're constantly dealing with failures and, and, and growing through those failures and learning from them, how do you mentally process that and just keep going? And, and, you know, and I, and I love the, um, the exercise, three good things, but before you came up with that, what was it that made you so resilient? Um, you know, a lot the three good things and, uh, is like a principle of positives or not a principle, but a method in positive psychology. Um, and uh, uh, which I've studied a lot and including, you know, a lot of the work that Martin Seligman does did, uh, uh, I don't know how active he is, but um, it is about resilience. And um, I don't know, it, that's a, I, I'm still not quite sure. I mean, resilience is like part stubbornness, you know, that's a mm -hmm. element of right. it people don't talk yeah. about. Um, yep you know, it's only like people interpret resilience as grit or just only positive. But I think a lot of it is truly about 
just being stubborn when you believe that you're right. And, and um, uh, I, I think, so I think that that's uh, part of it in terms of resilience, but also, um, you know, I just don't think that these are like new ideas, right? I think that a lot of like old right. philosophers um, right. talk about the same thing, right? Like you don't inherently trust authoritative figures with what they're saying, because it may right. not be right. That's Socrates. I mean, there's just, I, I feel like I'm just more of an observer and, and, and synthesizing a lot of things that have been in the, that have been known for a long time. Um, and, uh, and I also, I think do my best to not put myself in situation where I'm going to be subjected to like group think in a way where it's easier to quit. Right. 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 You know, and I'm going to ask you kind of a trick question here, not intentionally, but it's the only way I can think of to word it because I'm about to ask you your one loss. You know, what did you learn from it? But in the back end of that question, the reason I'm asking that, because I'm also going to ask you what you learned from your wins and how do those lessons compare in value? Because I think we spend so much time um, when we have success in our feedback loops and we don't celebrate the small victories or we don't sit and, okay, why did this work? We spend so much time banging our heads against the wall when things don't work um, that I don't understand. I, I think sometimes we miss the value in the victories. But if we could start with the one loss, what you learned uh, with that. And what was that one loss? I'm not even sure what I count as my one loss because not everything I've done has been su as successful as I want it to be. I, I think it was speaker sight. Yeah. I think you, yeah, right. I think. <laughs> so, so speaker sight, I mentioned uh, Artie Isaac, um, who's a good friend and a mentor of mine. Um, we started what was supposed to be a marketplace for, for public speakers. And what we learned pretty quickly was it, the business was actually profitable. It was just like not profitable enough to make them to be, to be anything. Right. Um, one of the things that we realized pretty early on was we were able to get the supply side, right? Meaning like a lot of people wanted to speak so much so that they were willing to pay a monthly membership in order to be part of our panel, essentially of speakers, but we could get almost no demand in terms of like companies or public speakers or, or places that wanted to book a speaker. And we were making money in the business because speakers were paying a monthly fee, but we weren't actually delivering at a rate that I felt comfortable about, meaning like not nearly enough people were getting booked. And so I think we got to this crossroads where we thought, look, we could probably scale this to a, a, a business, but it is going to be one of those things where there's tons of chargebacks on the credit cards because people are pissed off because they're not getting booked. And it's interesting because there are two or three businesses that, that maybe they're still in existence that were doing just that, right? They weren't really getting any demand, but they were able to successfully get um, people to just pay every single month. And there was just like a series of broken expectations. And so it just didn't feel like ethically it was a business that we should continue. And so we stopped and, um, and that was the loss. So uh, it maybe was like sort of a self-inflicted loss but even the wins that I had were very close to being losses, right? I remember um, one of the businesses that I was able to successfully sell, I remember sitting with a mentor of mine, RJ Nicolosi, who runs like a CEO training program uh, and is now our, our, our board, my board chair right now. And I remember thinking, as I sat down with him, like in three weeks, I'm going to either have sold this company or it's going to be bankrupt. And 
the reality is between now and when I find out what happens, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to change that. It's going to, somebody else's decision if they're going to buy our company or not. And I did the exact same thing for people to three weeks right like later determine that I'm either a genius for being able to get this company sold <laughs> or an idiot for having started it and having to wind it down. And so um, I just I took a lot from that experience realizing that there's not that much daylight between success and failure in, in business. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of points of failure along the way that you got to find your, your way through. Um, and those can happen at any point. But uh, that, was, that was sort of the way that I think about success and failure, at least. And you talked about there's, there's not enough, you know, difference between success and failure in, you know, so much of it comes with um, the persistence and the resilience. But where does competitiveness come in for you in terms of a competitive drive? We talked about stubbornness inside of resilience, but where, how, about, how about competing? Because I, I feel like that's something we don't talk about enough. Right. You know, I, I know for a lot of entrepreneurs, that is what drives them, right? Mm. Or even people who are just entrepreneurial and a lot of like great salespeople, that's what drives them. I think for me, I mean, this isn't what I want to say, but I think this is the truth for me and a lot of other entrepreneurs. I know that the competitiveness isn't necessarily to do better than another entrepreneur, but it's mm -hmm. more like fear of failure that drives you. Right. Yeah. And I remember yeah. when I was doing the nonprofit that I started, there were so many times that we probably should have quit. Even with this company I'm currently working on, mm -hmm. I let it go out of business and we're doing fantastic now. Tens of, million of, tens of millions of dollars of revenue, we're profitable, mm -hmm. um, you know, almost 100% growth probably uh, wow. this year. So we're doing great, but there have been so many times where we almost failed and times where you know I had co-founders who did leave. Um, they, I now believe they just thought we were going to fail. Um, but you know, going back to your question, um, how, I'm sorry, I think I got off. No, 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 no. You're right, you're right there competing in, in terms of how, you know, having that, you know, having an edge. Like I, I like to wake up every day and figure out how I'm going to have an edge. Am I better today than I was yesterday? You right. Know, am, I, am I better at the end of today than I was at the beginning of today? And there is, there is a fear, a fear of failure. And I believe fear can be very healthy if you, if you respond to it in the right way. But I'm just curious because I think so many times, especially now we're starting to get a, a generation. I'm not knocking generations. I'm just speaking the reality of the situation is, is, you know, these, these people have received trophies their entire life. Have we tied their hands in terms of going out there and, and, and knowing what it means to compete every single day uh, and not take days off? I'm, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question only because I don't think that I have that the, the, I'm like competing with myself, right? With trying to be a better myself. But I think that whatever, whatever it is that drives you, mm -hmm. that you don't want to drive you. That's where I was going with this nonprofit was I remember thinking to myself, gosh, like, you know, part of my reason for doing that was to like impress other people, like a specific woman. even, And, and I just thought, okay, that is the wrong reason to be doing it. <laughs> At least I can, uh, like, let's take that drive, whatever the, whether it's for good reasons or bad reasons, and harness it and just sort of say, doesn't matter why I feel that way. Let me use that to propel me forward. Like, 
seize every single piece of enthusiasm that you have and put it towards what you're trying to accomplish rather than perhaps question your motives. Right. With, with, with that being said, what, what have you found with all your startups, all, all your ventures, what have you found to be a greater challenge? And, and, and I know they're different challenges, but what have you found to be a greater challenge? Just building something up, getting it to a certain level or sustaining the success that you've had? Um, you know, most of the other companies outside the nonprofit I had were, we, they were sold before they really had scale. Um, and you know, this current company that I'm working on now is one of the first times that I'm really getting it into maintenance mode. We haven't been profitable for all that long, but, um, I, I think I'm not qualified to answer that question. Uh, okay. How about this? And I'll take, I'll take a, <laughs> yeah, I'll take a twist for you. In your opinion, what do you think is harder <laughs> in your expert opinion? I probably maintaining it, but maybe that's only because I have done it. Like, is it actually harder? No. But like, do most entrepreneurs have the temperament to do that? No, absolutely not. Like, it's probably an easier thing to do, but it's much harder for me. So, and you notice, or you notice, excuse me, you mentioned that entrepreneurs like chaos and I get that, you know, we like different things going on, a lot of balls in the air, things coming in all different directions. What, how do you, how do you handle your distractions? How do you stay focused and how do you handle your distractions? So I try to, like at the on good days, I I I was like a big proponent of David Allen's getting things done methodology, and um, and on good days I follow that pretty strictly, and start every day by looking at sort of all the commitments I have, and then actually writing down on a piece of paper what I'm going to try to get done that day, and then sticking to it. I'm better some days than others at that focus. You know, the only thing that I can liken it to it's like and. When you're trying to meditate, and because right, I, I try, I think of myself as a meditator, but when you're trying to meditate, you lose focus for a moment. Everybody loses focus, like monks lose focus. Nobody's really staying focused for all that long. It's the same thing with work. Like I feel shitty in the course of the day because I'm just thinking, you know what? I'm not perfectly uh, aligned with my goals. I'm getting all. Right. But overall, it seems to be working well enough or at least better than other people do. Like, there's just no perfection, right? You're going to fall off this board a lot, and I think that's just part of the process. Right, right. So you've talked about there's times when you probably should have quit. You probably should have gave up on something and let something just, just shut down, shut, you know, let something fail. When there is a time, when you get to that point, because we all have those breaking points and we know that we, we may not know it at the time, but they're, they're somewhat of defining moments in our business. Are they not? I think so. I mean, I go back to that stock deal paradox, um, you know, that I learned about from good to great. And, and I think it, regardless of what anybody thinks about good to great, I do think of the stock deal paradox as sort of like a central pillar of entrepreneurship where you really have to simultaneously believe, um, that no matter what happens, you're going to get through it. But at the same time, have the courage to confront the most brutal parts of your reality head on. Right. And I probably botched the exact wording of it, but that, no, that it's I, pretty good. <laughs> I think that's the balance yeah. of, of, of being an entrepreneur, which is like, you have to do both at one time. And those two things are really anathema to each other. So it's hard to do. Um, and and that, I mean, that's what I look at as one of the hardest things. It's not, everybody says, 
you know, got to do the right thing. You have to act with integrity. But everybody says that until they're confronted with a situation where it's easier to not do. Um, and so I think those are probably the things that I'm proudest of, which is like continuing to act with integrity in light of very, very difficult situations where other people are not. And I also think that people who, you know, who want to bring me down, just like everybody has those people in their lives, they know that that's something that matters to me. And so if I get attacked, that's what I get attacked for. It's like, right but, now, yeah. bi- bi- business wise, not from a personal standpoint, from a business standpoint, um, what is the greatest fear or what's the biggest uh, challenge fear wise that you've had? I'm trying to word this right way. So in other words, there was something in front of you, an obstacle, okay, a hurdle, um, adversity, the biggest fear you had, but all of a sudden when you were able to get to that other side of the fear, you, you were a better person for it. You were more successful for it. You were smarter for it. But what was it? What was the one thing you faced where you're like, crap, man, I don't know if I've got this. I mean, that happens to me a lot. So it's not like... Which is, I mean, and I'm about to say which is good, but it's good for our listeners so that they know that it does happen a lot. Right. So, I mean, going back even at the beginning of starting companies, I was like, my family did not grow up talking about money. That was like not a topic that anybody talked about. It was like completely verboten. You didn't talk about it. It was not something that you were supposed to talk about. And um, in the world of business, that, I mean, that just doesn't work. And so I've gotten, you know, that's something that really unnerved me. I mean, for years. And I think I'm probably over it now. In but what way did it unnerve you, Rob? It was such a, like, in, like, in my family and in, in, in my broader family, people don't talk about their salaries ever. You never talked about it. And maybe that's a Midwest thing, too. Nobody knew how much somebody else made or they didn't talk about it, but they might theorize about it or how much money somebody had. Anyways, it just wasn't a topic of not even polite conversation, but like even conversation you would have, you know, privately. And, um, you know, in my world, and so I think as a result, like I, I looked at money as like something that was sort of inherently evil and you don't talk about it and it's wrong to seek that. And now I just look at it as, you know, currency, it's, it's a means to get something done um, one way or another, right? And it's not so sacrosanct that I, I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore, basically. And um, I mean, that's one example, but that's pretty vague. I mean, recently we had a, like a higher profile executive quit with no notice. And I had to take over that job function and figure it out because nobody else was there to do it. And, you know, thankfully, um, our board helped find a replacement relatively quickly. For, but for about a month, I was doing that job as well. And I didn't know anything about how to do that job, or I knew very little. And, you know, it, those are those, I think that those constitute those Stockdale moments where it's like, I'm going to make this a defining part of my life, right? In this particular case, I learned basically since October with a couple of really severe periods, like, acute periods of needing to learn as fast as I possibly could how to be like all about accounting and finance. And in other times I had to learn about like fundraising, right? So I will, you know, my, I have a pretty normal routine when I get confronted like with something like that, which is, you know, if I'm thinking clearly, I go and I get 
I buy five books and I end up reading three of them and I get through them as quickly as possible. I'll go search for podcasts on that topic. I start to watch videos on YouTube. I just educate myself in really a fire hose methodology, even though I want to think about it like in an organized way. I just start to learn as much as I possibly can and, and then systematically dissect it and, and try to, you know, try to overcome whatever it is. I say this to my uh, coworkers all the time, which is how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time, right? Every, and, it, and it's just, it's easy to remind somebody of that. It's harder to remind yourself, but um, yeah, I think that that is, uh, it's an important part of, of, of this process. So to go back to the, and it is, and, and to go back to, you know, obviously every successful person I know is a continual learner, right? They're always learning. They're always reading. They're always listening to things or going to things. Um, when you read in a fire hose kind of way, all right, when you're educating yourself on something that you, you may not know as much about as you, you feel like you should, um, how do you absorb it? You know, I, I find that um, I tend to study books more than I do read in a fire hose kind of way and it slows me down a little bit, but I feel like, I, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, slower <laughs> mentally and intellectually, but, but how do you, how do you do that? Do you, do you read something and if it clicks, you write it down and you go back to it or, or what is your process with that? Um, you know, I think a lot of my job is not being fantastic at one thing, but being like competent enough to get it done at least term basis until somebody else can do it or until until there's a need to do it really well so i try to get you know i use the parade principle and just try to get 80 percent of the way there but usually what it looks like is you know when i say fire hose i mean like i'll start reading a book if it if it's resonating i keep reading it i'll like when i can't read anymore because i have a headache i'll start to listen to podcasts or again watch videos on youtube about it you start to see like themes i think or common learning that are repeated over and over by people. I mean, just by way of example, if you start doing that with sales, I just sort of teach myself how to do enterprise sales at the beginning of our company and then all the way through it. Like you'll hear some of the same things over and over again that multiple sources tell you is critical. An example would be, um, you know, working on comp structures, how you really need to incentivize new business over old, you know, existing business. That's a good, like I'm trying to give a concrete example for your listeners where if you listen to five or six podcasts on sales and you read four or five books on it, that's one of the central things that will emerge, right? That maybe you wouldn't know if you didn't, if you weren't skilled in the art of that industry. Now, I have 10,000 hours of like coaching salespeople. No, and I'm not going to have 10,000 hours doing that. But I do know some of the most important things that I keep coming back to in a pretty stubborn way when somebody has to break one of those sort of axioms that I determined or that are determined in that field as being critical. So it's really about like becoming familiar with and, and also accepting that you're not going to be perfect. If you know 80% of it or 70% of it, you're going to be able to be conversant. And people know like, all right, this guy knows enough of what he's talking about that he knows enough about what he's talking about that I need to listen to it. Right. He's, he's not clueless. And that could have been like when I was teaching myself how to program, when I was teaching myself how to build computers, when I was teaching myself finance. I mean, like, there's I, so many things that I, I do not, I am not a good coder. 
definitely not an excellent coder. And I'm not, I don't even think people build computers anymore, but I'm not like amazing at any one of those things. I just, right. but I, I think I am amazing at learning something well enough quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, as, as we wrap up here and, and you and I are talking about continuing learning and reading, um, what is one book that our listeners should go pick up right now um, that has to pertain with to, to success? Man, I really like Ben Horowitz's book, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's been a while since I read it, but I remember just really appreciating his honesty and candor about what the process looks like, especially because it's somebody who you know, he, he runs a large and successful, by all accounts, uh, VC fund. And I think that if you look like just a little, if you just scratch the surface at all, you start to see that anybody who has any experience with entrepreneurship, it's not been super easy for them. Like they dealt with their own things along the way that I think a lot of people just assume didn't happen. I, I don't know that that's revolutionary revolutionary people know that but anyways that book was great um I'm trying to think what else was great well you know what I, you know what i love about that rob normally when i'll ask people that even if it's just in conversation not in the podcast they'll name whatever book they're reading right now you know you dug a little bit for that book so that's that that's awesome now what what is one book that that your inner circle or your friends if you were to tell them hey i read this and it really it impacted me or i loved it it, it, it influenced me what would be one book that would surprise them hmm. Um, and you can go as far back as you want. <laughs> like, like my, my buddy still give me a hard time because I, you know, growing up, I love the book where the red fern grows. I love that. You know, book. I mean, that's a good it was a great book. Wasn't it? I hey, I had to lock my bedroom door though. When it, when the dog wasn't doing so well at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to answer that with not a book, but a TV show. That's like a guilty pleasure of mine. Which, okay. <laughs> the show Gilmore Girls which I remember moments of extreme stress and thinking, yeah. I'm not a single mom. I'm not a, right. like, a daughter. I have yeah. nothing in common with anybody on this show, and, but it's well-written and I can turn right. my brain off and just watch other people go through a struggle that I can't empathize with at all. And for whatever reason, that was like a therapeutic thing. And it's funny because my roommate at the time, this is like right after college, he was a, a, an astrophysicist and like all of us, all of, like there's like four grown men in a house sitting around watching Gilmore like, girls. <laughs> like, and we all got sort of like moved into watching Gilmore girls and like, you know, it was like a, almost like the way a gateway drug would work. And Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. You know, and, and Rob, I, I love to do things successful people do, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to start watching Gilmore girls. Off. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love it. That is great. I was yeah. listening to a podcast yeah. and, I, and I told people about this, right? Like I, it's uh, like, this podcast was about a, like a unit in the Marines. I think it was a This American Life about a okay. unit in the Marines that had the same obsession. They all started watching Gilmore Girls and they were like writing the, 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 the producer. I, so you may want to. Are you, I was going to say, are you telling me that just to give me that nudge? Are you just nudging me along to the Gilmore Girls? <laughs> I, I can find it somewhere. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find it. Uh, well, hey, Rob, thanks for your time. This this was awesome. I appreciate it. I appreciate um, all the incredible um, insight you gave us. 
Uh, where can our listener, where, where can they find you in terms of social media? Where can they find any, anything you want to share with us um, sure. to get that out there? Could keep like whatever the latest contact information is at right. robemrich.com, E-M-I-C-H. That has a link to contact me and everything if I can be helpful to any of your listeners. Okay. Uh, Rob, Rob, thank you. And, and to find out more about us, go to the themolitorgroup.com. Uh, we are on Twitter at the Molitor Group. Um, this podcast, along with all podcasts, you can find um, – um, where you can find all podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, we have our website, theathleticsofbusiness.com, uh, to see some previous guests that were absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, and again, Rob, thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing uh, everything you shared, and um, we really appreciate it. Wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity, Ed. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.